Thank you for calling Gay Wire. Your call is very important to us. Press 1 for fourth wave feminism. Press 2 for a strangely in-depth discussion about where the worms have gone. Press 3 for... You have chosen option 3. Please stay on the line. Hello, and thank you for choosing option 3. You've reached Gaywire, where everything is at least a little bit queer. I am your humble host, Terrence Adams, and I'd just like to give you a solid thank you for tuning in to Gaywire on CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. Firstly, a Happy New Year's to you, listeners. I hope your mind and body have found joy in this cold, cold winter, and that you continue to find joy in 2022. Now, what better way to celebrate the coming of a new year than by reflecting on the past year? That is why, in this one-of-a-kind episode of Gaywire, I will be taking y'all on a trip down memory lane as we revisit some of our interviews from this first calendar year of the reboot of Gaywire. Before I get into that, though, there are a few things I would like to mention. The first is fairly easy to surmise if you're listening to this live. It's cold out there. There are a lot of folks sleeping rough, so this is a reminder to be extra kind, and if you see someone in distress, you can call 211 and press 3 for non-emergency support, or you can call Boyle Street's Street Outreach at 780-860-6146. If you'd like to help in other ways, you can head on over to the Community Fridge outside of the Earth's General Store on White Ave. This fridge is accessible to everyone, and they accept fresh and vegan donations. Head on over to their Instagram at community.fridge.yeg for more info. Additionally, you may remember our interview with Q Lawrence back in October of 2021. You'll be hearing a little bit of it later, so don't worry if you don't know who Q is yet. But anyways, Q is in need of a wheelchair. The one they have is simply not built for it, and it's held together with bungee cords and a prayer. For those of you unfamiliar, Mobility aids are super expensive, so the goal is $15,000 for one to meet their minimum needs and up to $35,000 to actually meet their needs. If you're able to help Q out, you can give in a couple of ways. All of these ways will be contained in a post on our Instagram at GaywireCJSR. Again, that's at GaywireCJSR on Instagram for donation links for Q's new wheelchair. Or if you're listening to the podcast version of this episode, check the links in the description. Alright, so to start us off, an interview from former Gaywire reporter Bethany Godreau, where she speaks with Riley Laurel, a non-binary boudoir photographer. I don't know, I like being naked. comment on something and they're like yes girly and it's like I'm not a girl <laughs> like I just want to be talked to like a person like boudoir has always been for women but it doesn't need to be anymore 
my name is Riley. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a queer and non-binary boudoir photographer. Let's start with a little bit about you and your background as a photographer and how you got into boudoir photography. So it was kind of funny how I ended up getting into boudoir photography. I had actually started taking pictures way back in high school and started taking pictures for clients. And I was just doing a little bit of everything. Um, of course, because I wasn't 18, boudoir wasn't really on my radar. I was aware that it was a thing, but it wasn't super, super popular. Um, the moment that I had turned turned 18, though, um, within the first couple of months, I actually started to get into sex work myself. And from there, I discovered a very popular site. Um, I won't name them. <laughs> Um, but I did start, I did find out about this really popular nude modeling site and connected with a couple of models through there. Um, it was probably one of the best experiences that I've ever done in that sense. Like I, I don't know, I like being naked. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a lot of fun and I decided, Hey, I want to give this experience to other people. And I like seeing how, you know, how bodies move and seeing all the beautiful lingerie that people would come in with so eventually I started shooting my own sets for this site and met through with a couple of models so from there it kind of blossomed into full-blown boudoir. How does your identity as a non-binary person inform your boudoir photography? The one thing that I notice a lot from being non-binary is there's not a lot of spaces for us there really isn't so when I came out, I actually came out around the same time that I went full-time. It was a whirlwind of different emotions on how I wanted to run my business. Because up until that point, the majority of the people that I had worked at were women. Um, and it was, you know, I wanted to be a photographer that was inclusive to everybody, no matter what. So I changed everything around and, you know, started really preaching that like boudoir is for everybody. There's no set gender with it. It's time for it to change. And that a lot of that came from just my own identity because I got so tired of just not feeling included with anything. And, you know, like, yes, historically women have been oppressed for a very long time and still are. Um, but I have learned that being non-binary and queer even, it gets, it gets pretty bad too. Like there's not a lot of spaces for us. So I wanted to make something that was welcoming and accepting and wasn't, you know, just here to diversify my portfolio personally. I wanted to actually have a genuine space for us as well. Uh, and you mentioned one of the ways that you've worked on doing that is um, with your VIP Facebook group as well. Yeah, I actually have two Facebook groups. Uh, the general thing with the majority of photographers, especially boudoir ones, is Facebook groups. And the reason for that is because Facebook and Instagram do not like small businesses. And they especially do not like photographers that take pictures of nearly naked people. So... <laughs> The only way to combat that is to make a Facebook group. Um, it's a good way to keep up interaction and engagement, which is really big when it comes to finding new clients. 
Um, however, the majority of these other photographers, including even, I found this is really interesting, even with the boudoir photographers that were men, they had Facebook VIP groups that were women only. And, you know, I, I get it. Like boudoir has always been for women, but it doesn't need to be anymore. It's like that word is a French word for essentially like a private room for women, like that it's situated like between the bedroom and, and another part of the house, but it was kind of like, you know, like a little private quarters, essentially like a sulking room, but yeah. So it eventually, um, about a hundred years ago, kind of moved into a genre of photography and just this past couple of years, it's really picked up speed. So of course we have all these VIP groups and they're all made, you know, women only ladies only. Um, whereas, you know, I want to be able to have a group that's for everybody because like everybody deserves to, to go and get pictures done. If you want to get pictures done in your underwear in a boudoir setting, go for it. It doesn't matter if you're a girl, a guy, non-binary, like it, it really doesn't matter. Just go do it for myself because I had started out with sex work and modeling. It was so tough finding, you know, photographers that I personally felt comfortable with because all of their VIP groups are very women-centric with their language and just the way that they approach their clients. And it was to the point where, you know, even though they said like, yeah, this group is open to women and, and non-binary people and, and trans women and like all of this stuff, it almost kind of felt a bit uncomfortable because you'd still get all the posts that said hey ladies or or hey girls or you know you'd comment on something and they're like yes girly and it's like I'm not a girl <laughs> like I just want to be talked to like a person I don't understand why I need to be called that like just because I present in that way doesn't mean I am um so kind of it moved into more of an annoyance at that point so I started my own group and said, you know what, anybody and everybody, I don't care, whatever you identify as or whatever you are, you can come in. I don't care. As long as you're respectful to everybody else and you're not homophobic, transphobic, racist, et cetera, uh, then sure. And a lot of the times too, with even these photography groups, I will comment that because I'll be like, well, what do you guys do for your, your groups to make them inclusive? And I say, well, I've completely removed any women-centric language from my groups and from my pages and from my website and they're all like well how do you how do you get rid of any like creepy men and it always comes back to that and it's really it's almost kind of disappointing that you know actions of a couple of men completely have you know defined that gender to say okay well if they want in a group that's made for boudoir then they're being creepy when that's not the case at all there's lots of men that I have shot boudoir with. When you say that you don't want any men in your group, you're not only just pushing out like any sort of straight men, you're pushing out gay men too, which I've shot a lot with like a ton of gay men. And I just, I got sick of it. And eventually it was just kind of like, my answer was the same thing. Cause they would always be like, how do you keep out these people? Like you can't, you can't really police the people that come into these groups. You can't. Uh, you can do it to a certain extent, but anybody can make a fake Facebook account. And it also kind of leads back to the fact that I have had experiences myself with men that were not so great. 
but I've also had experiences with women that weren't great and with non-binary people that were not great. So we can't just define and throw it all at one gender. There's really no point to be doing that. We just have to be a little bit more diligent with it. And, you know, I do understand that um, some people do have trauma in that sense, but at the same time, we're pushing the limits to even having a Facebook group to begin with, because it does say in the terms and conditions, we're not allowed to do that. But, you know, it's, it's completely up to anybody how they want to run their, their group. But, you know, if any of the boudoir photographers are listening to this, I deeply, deeply encourage you, please make your groups better. This is not just for women. You don't have to accept cis men in your group. However, please be aware that non-binary people exist, trans people exist. We want to be included. And I sure as shit do not want to see you posting. If you have a trans client come in, I do not want to see you say that. I don't want to say, look, I had a trans woman client come in. Please don't do that. We don't want to be paraded. Unless they say so. I can't speak for every like not non-binary trans person, but we don't want to be paraded. We just want to be accepted. So that was the big reason why I started my my group to be all inclusive. I wanted a space that I felt comfortable in and that invited other non-binary folks to feel comfortable in. Yeah, not to get um too deep into like the gender theory elements of it. I just thought that was super interesting because uh I've been reading a little bit more about like gender critical theories of feminism, which is just a nicer way of saying trans exclusionary radical feminism or TERFs, um, and a little bit more about how that all operates. And I think the rhetoric around the woman only spaces comes from these histories of repression and like collective trauma. Uh, and it tries to be synonymous with safe space, but can be rooted in these ideas uh, that can be really harmful to like all kinds of different queer trans folks. That just goes to say, I think it's worth taking a more critical lens to the idea of a women's only space and see what that actually means and how we can achieve the same amount of safety in a way that isn't dependent on histories of gendered violence. We've touched on this a little bit already, but can we expand on the historic elements of boudoir and femininity and specifically like histories of embodied empowerment? Absolutely. Um, yeah, actually, believe it or not. So like I said before, boudoir photography has been around for almost 100 years now. And one of the most popular boudoir photographers um, to this day was actually a man. <laughs> Shocker. Yeah, his name was Albert Arthur Allen. Um, so nowadays, when we look at boudoir photographers, about 90% of them are women with a couple of, um, a couple of them are men. There are actually some pretty popular and very incredible educators that are men in boudoir photography. And then there are us little non-binary folks. I know all of three. <laughs> um, yeah, I know all of three, um, but I'm sure that number is a lot higher. Obviously I don't know everybody, but yeah, it's definitely been historically dominated by women. So of course it's tough to, to go through and, and kind of break down these stereotypes, even with other boudoir photographers that I interact with. It's always like, it's always like a 50-50 shot on if they'll be um, respectful or if I get the hey girl message right off the bat and I'm like, hello, my pronouns are in my bio, please read. <laughs> 
but um yeah it's and you know what I have absolutely no problem with it being dominated by women please dominate this genre do it um it's one of the few photography genres that is dominated by women it's like photography was always a man's thing women came in and said nope we're doing the boudoir (laughs) back off just heard Bethany Godros speaking with Riley Laurel about being a non-binary boudoir photographer. You're listening to Gaywire on CJSR 88.5 FM in Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. You can catch the full interview with Bethany and Riley by searching for Gaywire CJSR wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, we're going to hear from August Montgomery about their hairdressing practice. Uh, my relationship with my hair is pretty complex. As a child, I was often like forced into haircuts that I never really wanted. It was just all like for the comfort of my parents, truly. Uh, but I did find so much joy in cutting other people's hair and giving them those haircuts that they wanted, especially uh, my trans friends uh, who wanted men's cuts, but would always be getting like the the Karen pixie and I found joy in doing that for people for my friends and that's truly where I began to grow uh within my own hair and try out different styles as well the ever-changing uh life of my hair that hair is constantly growing and changing and you are too as a person uh I just love it (laughs) I do have a tattoo on both sides of my head. One says, well, they both say hair grows. Uh, one is backwards so I can read it in the mirror, and one is regular for everyone else. Uh, but I just find that during times where things are really stressful and I feel like I'm going to be like stuck in this moment forever, I remind myself that time always moves forward, that life is always changing, that I cannot stay in this moment forever, that my hair is always growing. And to sum it up, I just say hair grows and it's so cool to see my hair growing over top of this tattoo it's just a reminder how time can be kind to us i fell into hairstyling by accident as a kid my mom always cut my hair at home so i never kind of went to a stylist and was exposed to the industry Um, and then in high school my sister urged me to take cosmo and i eventually loved it but uh, being genderqueer in hair school was a tough go. The industry is very cis white woman based and it was very clicky. But I was, uh, wasn't the only gay in hair school, which really helped out. And that's where I found my group of friends and people I fit in with. And there's lots of other hairstylists and barbers and hybrid hairstylists out there uh, that are like you. And the perfect hairstylist is always around. Being a trans hairstylist is important to me. I want to give other people the opportunities, other young gays the opportunities as well to to be creative in their adolescence and be creative in your adulthood life isn't 
supposed to be boring once you reach an adult. I want to have fun. I want to play around with the gender constructs, destroy barriers, warp walls. I want to be an artist for people's hair. It seems so cool, so fun. It makes me happy. I primarily do curly hair, but my favorite things to do are um, super fun cuts, and I love super bright colors, and I'll do any color, truthfully. Uh, but I love, love fashion colors and bright colors and playing around with them. Getting your hair cut by your friend isn't a bad thing. It's whatever you do. If you prefer to go to a salon and get, like, a, a professional so-called professional cut it's just it's just hair you can do whatever you want with it it's your own hair if you want your friend to cut your hair have your friend cut your hair if you prefer to go to a salon you can go to a salon if you want your friend to cut your hair you can have your friend cut your hair it's your own hair you can do whatever you want with it um I, I do know the fear of going to a salon and being misgendered or not getting the same cut that you want you just have to kind of shop around and find the right stylist for you. It's it's like finding a tattoo artist. A tattoo artist isn't going to give you everything, like every single tattoo you want. Like there's different art styles, different things they specialize in. And you can do that with hair too. You don't have to go to the same person every time. If you want to go to your, your friends this time, go to see your friend. If you want to go to a salon, go to a salon. Go to a barbershop. It's your own hair. That's the whole joy of it. It's your own body. You own it. And rock it. You just heard August Montgomery speaking about their experience as a queer and trans hairstylist. And if you'd like to contact August Montgomery, you can reach them through their Instagram at cactus underscore curls. Thank you so very much for tuning in to CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton. And to finish off our medley of past interviews, a portion of the interview I did with Q Lawrence back in October. For this interview, I do want to give a quick content warning as we do talk about, we talk about ableism and survival work along with brief mentions of suicide. So Please take care of your brains and bodies. Without further ado, the interview. Uh, my name is Q, and I use they or it pronouns. I'm in so-called Chilliwack in BC. Um, it's the land of the Chiquayuk and Palalt tribes of the Stolo Nation. I'm a performing artist. I do installation art. I'm also a disability educator um, and consultant. And I also run a free fridge, like a community fridge out here. Um, I'm part of the defund police organizing out here. Um, that goes hand in hand with like all kinds of abolition stuff that we're trying to get going. Um, and everything that I do is like very much based in disability organizing. Um, so my priorities are always 
access and like radical access, open access, um, as well as making sure that no one is left behind and that the people who are most affected by um, by any topic or or area that is being organized around are the ones leading it. Um, so like that's the broad sweep of what I do. Um, yeah, there's there's a bit there. <laughs> Something that definitely uh, drew me in that I wanted to speak with you about is the the term queer crip. I've never encountered it before. And would you be able to provide like a brief definition or background of the term? For sure. Um, so queer crip is something that has come up from several places very organically. And it's something that a lot of queer disabled people and like radically politicized disabled people have, um, have kind of identified with. And that's the side that I'm speaking to. Um, I started using it like a number of years back because I was already identifying as queer and as um, like disabled. I used the term cripple in a reclaiming way. And naturally it was just like, this word makes sense to me and just started using it. And from a lot of people that I know who use it, that's a very similar experience. Like um, it wasn't around a single um, political point. It was just that we were, a lot of us were radicalized in similar justice-based and revolution-based politics. Um, the definition of it is really that, um, for me at least, um, is that, I mean, to be crip, first of all, is to be, um, for me, is to be radically political um, and um, recognize the identity of disability in whatever form it takes as a politicizing identity and not just, um, you know, the product of your body and society in a, a built environment, but like um, something that's kind of forced upon you by inequality and inequity. Um, and, you know, queerness is like this, I mean, you do this whole show on, on, on gay and queer and LGBTQ plus politics and whatnot. So yeah, queer brings a similarly radicalized and radical politicized lens to a lot of identity, I think. Um, and yeah, that's where the two kind of come together and go hand in hand and um, where a lot of us define define the whole of queer cryptness. Do you mind elaborating about the politicized uh, nature of disability? For sure. Yeah, so the category of disability actually didn't come about until about, I guess, the Industrial Revolution. Um, before that, like disabled people, what we would now call disabled people, people with mental illnesses, um, various chronic illnesses, etc. I mean, they've always, we've always existed. But like back then, it wasn't a category of social interaction and and kind of an identity or anything. And then industrial revolution happened and came with it the necessity to work in a certain way under capitalism. And that's not like common knowledge. That's not something you learn about when you learn about the industrial Re revolution. You don't learn that this whole new subcategory of humanity was 
created. The political and politicized nature of disability is one that recognizes that disability is um, integral to many of our identities and our ways of moving through the world, interacting with others, and just existing. The same way that queerness is um, an identity because it's something you innately are or become, and because we've had to organize around rights and justice, um, that is applicable as well to disability. Um, psychiatric survivors, um, people with physical disabilities, people with intellectual or cognitive developmental disabilities, all of these things um, have required extensive organizing around to get even where we are today, which is so completely insufficient and unjust and inequitable. How did you personally become involved in activism? I've always been pretty, I mean, I'm a pretty outspoken person. Um, I'm pretty loud about certain things, especially my belief that, you know, people deserve uh, more than just equality. We deserve, um, you know, <laughs> justice and the right to live and all of this stuff. And that goes back to like when I, I was very young. Um, and so between bouts of like homelessness and um, generally needing to fight really hard for my own needs to be met as a disabled person, as a trans person, <laughs> um, I think most of us as trans people can kind of be like, yeah, sometimes it's an up uphill battle. Um, with all of those things, like, I have always been very involved in community organizing and um, yeah, sometimes it's been based on necessity or I develop close relationships with um, people who are involved in the struggle for their own justice and liberation. Kind of various facets of my like activism or advocacy or general organizing. Um, and you know, being organized, um, like they all come into play kind of at different points in my life. Um, but they all, again, as I said before, like everything I organize with is with disability justice, and they all kind of stem from that that point because disability and justice includes everyone and everything at the end of the day that is facing facing a justice based struggle. So I would say I started organizing around disability justice about a decade ago. Um, and before that, I was involved in disability organizing and whatnot. I, I lived some of my life as a street-based kid as well as youth. And um, if you're not fighting to survive, everyone else around you is. Um, and due to that, I, I was pretty active on that front. Um, and yeah, a decade ago, I would have been like 14, 15, um, and got this name for a way of viewing the interconnectedness of justice-based and liberation-based struggles, um, because prior to finding the name for disability justice, I... I have ADHD and we have like a billion neurons firing at once. <laughs> it's like the way our brains are built. And a lot of us can't see anything, a single issue. Um, if 
if we one day see everything as connected, it we can't turn it off is what I find in community conversations about this. So yeah, having a name for that ADHD billion neuron sensation um, and having people who were actively organizing around the same things as I was, who believed the same politics that I do, um, which, you know, come down to like land back abolition and real equality rather than the equity that we need right now. Yeah. And like all of these amazing people were calling like naming it as disability justice, naming abolition and environmental justice and indigenous sovereignty as integral to disability justice. And that also including like disabled people. <laughs> so a decade for your for your question. Yeah. Could you could you um, elaborate a bit about how they're all interconnected under the umbrella of disability justice? For sure. So there are 10 principles to disability justice. Um, I would recommend people read Patty Burns writing um, Via Sins Invalid um, to like read about all of them in detail and whatnot. But one of the principles of disability justice is that, um, you know, we struggle for each other's liberation as well as our own, right? Um, disabled people are in every single community out there. I mean, we are in white supremacist communities and we are there are black disabled people like <laughs> and unfortunately we we span the spectrum again same as queerness like unfortunately there have been and still are gay white supremacists um so yeah disability justice is about like knowing that on on a very core level and knowing that all of our struggles are connected by nature of us spanning all communities. Um, approximately 25% of the global population is disabled and that number is actually increasing um, and is probably low to begin with because disability is such a, a diverse um, group. Um, but because, as I said, we're part of all of these groups, um, we're impacted by every single social justice issue out there. Um, there are disabled people incarcerated. There are trans women um, doing survival sex work in particular that are disabled. A lot of people in sex work are disabled. So yeah, all of these issues converge at a very obvious point in disability. And obviously they also converge among one another. Um, I mean, we obviously know about how the prison industrial complex targets people of color, especially black people and indigenous people. Um, we also know how it targets poor people, which is also intersects with racialization. Like already, like there are these connections that we're acknowledging and a lot of times we're just not seeing the weave of disability in there. And disability justice necessitates that we do that on both a conscious and subconscious level. What I kind of <laughs> call in my own head is like the body mind level. Yeah, so that's how everything's like connected all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I never really thought about it that way, but it, it absolutely, it absolutely is connected that way. Cause I, I you, you see that everything is connected, but there's always that, that missing puzzle piece. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Where you're not sure where where it is. Like you're like, yeah. I know that this is going to be connected. I know at some point it's going to be, and often if you sift through down to the bottom of it, if it's nothing else, 
there's a disability connection. <laughs> You're like, okay, <laughs> yeah. comes in here, goes out there. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know that there was a particular topic mm -hmm. that you wanted to speak with me about. So could you tell me a bit about the recently expanded assisted dying laws in Canada? Absolutely. Yeah, I did really want to speak about this because honestly, I've taken on uh, the role of galvanizing queer and trans people on this issue, um, at least in my own as far as my own reach can do that, <laughs> which is not extensive, but it's a start. Um, but just this March, um, a bill went through, Bill C-7, to expand uh, medical assistance in dying across Canada. We already have or had legalized assistance in dying um, through Bill C-14, um, which I think comes from 2016, um, which allowed people to apply for medical assistance in death or made um, if their death was considered reasonably foreseeable. So it didn't mean that they had to be terminally ill, but if someone had, you know, if they had cancer and they weren't terminally ill, but they were in their 80s or their 90s, um, and you could kind of be like, yeah, this person might live another, if they survive the cancer, they might live another 10, maybe 20 years, right? Um, then they could apply and potentially qualify for MAID. Um, now, that safeguard of their death having to be reasonably foreseeable has been removed. Um, the qualification for accessing MAID currently is, um, I mean, there are a number of them, but one of them that was changed through C7 is that um, someone is um, experiencing intolerable suffering um, as caused by a medical diagnosis. Um, Currently, the sole factor cannot be a mental illness. That's, I think that's set to change still in 2023, where an underlying, the underlying medical factor can be a mental illness and nothing else. Um, so I've been, I've been organizing personally around this for not very long. I haven't waded into these politics because they're very, um, personally painful and um i mean triggering um a lot of disabled people in particular have trauma around being offered made even though that was not legal under c14 um and i'm not an exception to that um but Back in March, my friend Gabrielle Peters, who's a core organizer around this, along with Catherine Frizee and Trudeau Lemons, I'll drop a bunch of other names I think people should go look up while I'm talking. Um, but these people, or Gabrielle rather, um, was joining up with Catherine Frizee, who's out in Nova Scotia, Brunswick, and I can never remember which one. Um, 
and they organized what we ended up calling the disability filibuster because that was Catherine's original idea. It was a, a filibuster um, to mainly to bring attention that a lot of disabled voices were not being centered in the conversation around made expansion. Um, it ended up not being quite what one would define as a filibuster, and I can't give a succinct definition, so um, apologies, but not uh, a traditional filibuster, but we did quite a lengthy Zoom call and series of things <laughs> that I could expand on. Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah, Gabrielle, or I called her G, and Catherine organized this against C7, and it ended up being disabled people from across Canada and internationally um, tuning in for like art and Trudeau Lemons gave a fantastic like uh, legal like presentation is the word um, on, on C7 and, and its um, potential ramifications for disabled people not actually wanting to access made but potentially being coerced into it or for like intellectually disabled people um not being given full information um we explored a lot during the filibuster um it's all archived at or not all of it but most of it is archived at disabilityfilibuster.ca or org if you look up the disability filibuster website on google it'll do the thing but yeah, there's like book readings. Um, I hosted just by nature of uh, most people being in bed and whatnot and me wanting to get some queer crip voices on the on the stream uh, for sure. Um, I hosted a, a few late night <laughs> filibuster is what we ended up jokingly calling it. Um, where, you know, queer crips just talked about being in poverty, being queer, our concerns with made. There were a lot of jokes because dark humor is necessary. But this thing was organized in a weekend and was radically accessible um, or tried to be. Uh, we organized on what's called or what we refer to as Crip Time. There's a really good essay by that name. Um, can't remember the author, but it's a really good essay and it expands on queer time. Um, but crypt time just being, you know, as our bodies and minds allow. <laughs> um, but it did come together in a weekend. Um, and then we were subject to like a number of Zoom bombings on the Monday that we launched, um, targeted by like right wing white supremacists. And we got it back up, I think by Wednesday. Um, and I'm basing that thought off of uh, <laughs> medical appointments. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, it was like really pulled together last minute because that was like the week of some of the decision-making, um, around this finalization of made, um, and we were like, okay, this is one last push. So that's when I got involved in like this fight against made was my original point. I'm a little bit rambling here and I hope people can follow, um, when they listen. Yeah, that's when I originally got involved in fighting made. I do really want to emphasize that people like Gabrielle, um, Catherine, um, Trudeau Lemons, 
Um, the entirety of the People First organization in, that um, organizes around deinstitutionalization of disabled people, especially intellectually disabled people, is really important to mention because intellectually disabled voices very we get very rarely get centered in a lot of disability organizing, even that of disability justice. Um, and like that's a really big place that needs to be changed. And yeah, they've been really involved in fighting eugenics is what made this made expansion is um, in Canada for a long time. Yeah. Um, would you mind elaborating on some of the problems and flaws with the expansion? Totally. So for people who previously qualified under MAID, um, who, um, whose deaths are considered reasonably foreseeable, they no longer have a wait period between um, like being told that they have been approved for MAID um, and accessing it. Uh, a doctor can, like if you get your, your second physician um, to sign off on your request, um, you can access MAID the same day. And that was something that was really pushed for by the groups that were lobbying for this expansion, which include disabled people, um, and really fought by those of us um, who are very against it. And the reasoning on, on the pro-made <laughs> um, side of things is that waiting for someone whose death is reasonably foreseeable, often you are thinking of terminally ill people, having any wait period um, extends suffering, but it's a safeguard and it's a safeguard for a reason because without that safeguard, it, it's another step towards potential coercion that we already see. Um, it means that you can access made way before you can ever get proper social supports. Um, a lot of disabled people live in poverty. The majority of disabled people live in poverty. Um, it takes way longer to access housing support um, or get a wheelchair than it takes to access MAID. And even um, for people who are, who now qualify for MAID, whose death is not reasonably foreseeable, but they, they are suffering intolerably, uh, to use the language of, of the bill, it's only a 90 day wait. And that's still, I mean, housing supports can take years, if not decades for a lot of us, especially when you need accessible housing or you need home health care before you can be discharged from a rehab facility. And if you don't have those things set up, you're sent to a long-term care home, which are understood by disabled people um, organizing around abolition as a carceral system that is not unlike prison. Um, the conditions of many long-term care homes, again, most uh, are abhorrent. Um, they don't take care of people. Um, a lot of times you can't have partners either within the long-term care home, like two residents cannot be together. Um, 
or you can't have visitors, um, including like your own spouses on occasion, especially during COVID. So yeah, this is a safeguard. The, the wait period is a safeguard that is now removed and made continues to be accessed by people who are very clear that they don't want to be dying. They just have no other choice at this point. Um, that's, you know, that's suicidal ideation that a lot of mentally ill people who are like largely many of us are, um, you know, socially marginalized, oppressed. We live in an inequitable, unjust society. And that leads to suicidal ideation because sometimes genuinely you can't do anything more for yourself. And instead of offering support in this very specific case, um, there isn't even, I mean, I would say that like most clear support that's offered for suicidal ideation um, is inadequate and, and is like very much a show or a platform or, you know, something to get someone elected for something. Um, but th there isn't even a pretend to it in the case of disabled people. Um, there's no, oh, we should help these people who are experiencing suicidal ideation because their world is built against them. Um, instead, it's legally ratified that we can access medical assistance in dying. So that's, you know, the overall issue with MAID really is that um, with this expansion, uh, the government is saying that disabled people, our suicidal ideation is reasonable and shouldn't be supported in fighting. Um, so I, th I think it's, like me saying it's triggering is, is quite literal, even in the original therapy definition of triggering. Um, yeah. So what's what's the goal? I mean, the goal at this point is to get it de-ratified, removed. Um, the way through to that goal is now, instead of fighting this thing coming into, into law, we have to prove that it violates the, the rights of disabled people. And there are several avenues for that. Um, you have to go through each of them before you can reach the UN. So um, I think first we are filing human rights um, violation under Canada's protection of disabled people. Um, I'm not a legal person. <laughs> Trudeau Lemons, again, I really, it's his segment is archived on the filibuster website. Um, but my understanding is that, yeah, we have to go through the Canadian protections um, of disabled people, which don't have a lot of teeth. Um, yeah, there's just not very much to the protection of disabled people in Canada. And that's the case for a lot of countries. But if it fails, we can go to the next step and continue upward until whatever point we reach the UN. Obviously, we want we wanted to fight it while it was, you know, going into law because <laughs> that's a little bit simpler and faster. Um, and the concern is that like more people will and are accessing made um, for social injustice reasons rather than them actually believing they are at the end of whatever they're able to do 
Um, yeah, so right now, um, I can't, I can't actually talk about some of this in full right now, but there are some organizing efforts to move towards those human rights fights, that side of things, um, and get like both uh, official information and anecdotal community information on people's experiences, accessing or not accessing MAID, but accessing other supports and the inequity that's at play right now and why this expansion should be struck down. Yeah, we're, a lot of us are putting in a lot of time again to, to do the digging that, that's required of us to get these human rights concerns heard. The UN, I mean, being the goal is both because kind of the highest you can go I guess in international politics um for fixing these things and it has the convention on the rights of people with disabilities um so the CRPD we already had a special rapporteur from the UN say that this expansion violates that convention, but that still went ahead. And you know, it's something we quite often see is whether or not the UN can actually be effective in certain countries due to those countries kind of, you know, having enough resources to ignore the UN and not worry about their own status. Um, thinking of, you know, most of uh, Canada, states, Europe, um, where, yeah, like international involvement isn't going to impact us in the same way that it would in um, destabilized countries. I guess the hope is that the UN does something more concrete if we do end up reaching them. Um, I think it's obvious that we don't have faith in the other levels before the UN. The, the goal is that the UN does something more concrete towards supporting and um, uh, enforcing disabled rights in Canada. Yeah, uh, going all the way to the UN, that sounds like a path that will take a rather long time and be disheartening to say the least. Yeah. So what can um, other people do to support in the meantime? Yes. So what I said at the beginning is like, I want to galvanize queer and trans people on this. And, you know, there's, there's one side of me that's like, I mean, we should all be involved in this however we can, like supporting people who are directly fighting it, um, showing up to any kind of in-person or online gatherings against these things. Like those are ways to, to support on one side, but like we haven't seen a lot of that from queer and trans community that don't already have an investment in disabled people. Um, a lot of people just don't show up for disabled people um so part of me says like solidarity <laughs> like you should just be invested because disabled people and therefore queer disabled people will be impacted um but the other side knows that like sometimes that's difficult and we have to make prioritizations in our head that you know we can't necessarily justify to everyone around us and also this is something like near and dear to me so i think that everyone needs to get on it You just heard myself, Terrence Adams, speaking with Q Lawrence about disability justice.
You can catch that whole interview by heading on over to your favorite podcast platform and searching for GayWire CJSR. Additionally, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, Q is in need of a new wheelchair as theirs is falling apart as we speak. Links to donate are in the description of this podcast episode and can also be found in a post on our Instagram at GayWireCJSR. And that is all, my friends. I hope you have enjoyed these snippets of interviews. Check out the full versions if you want to, and hope against hope that it's not your night to swallow a spider. Gaywire is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. We are grateful to be in the traditional territory of the diverse Indigenous peoples of this land. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We encourage you to reflect on your own relationship further and ask what accountability would look like here in practice for yourself, the communities you are a part of, and the larger systems that shape our daily access and opportunities. Thank you so much for listening. Today's show was produced by Shane Giles, John Victor Krieger, Artemis Peasley, Ash Halinda, and myself, Terrence Adams. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. Just search Gaywire CJSR, and you can find us online at gaywire.transistor.fm, and on Facebook or Twitter at Gaywire, and where we are much more active, our Instagram and TikTok at GaywireCJSR. Let us know what you think of the show. Hit up the DMs sometimes. Let us know what you think of the show. Hit up the DMs sometime, or if you'd rather be fancy, you can also email gaywire at cjsr.com, and you never know, you just might get to be a part of this show. Our artwork is by Travis Erickson. Original music by Doug Hoyer and Catherine Hiltz. Until next week, keep it breezy, and please stay on the line.